Good morning. Glad you could uh, be with us again today and beautiful, uh, beautiful morning. If you're a guest with us again, welcome. Glad you could, uh, could be with us. Um, Chuck Swindoll, you've probably heard that name, uh, quite a few years ago, wrote a little piece that is, uh, is uh, quite compelling, uh, poignant work entitled Lessons from a Tavern. I think it's been like 20 years since I've read this thing, but um, it, it fits in this whole uh, discussion and, and sermon series that we've been going through uh, from um, Romans chapter 12. We've been teaching through the book of Romans and kind of gotten stuck here in Romans chapter 12. Uh, starting at verse 9 about love. But Swindle writes this, and it's, it's a little longer, so uh, bear with me, but it's called Lessons from a Tavern. He said, an old Marine Corps buddy of mine, to my pleasant surprise, came to know Christ after he was discharged. I was surprised because, well, he cursed loudly, fought hard, chased women, drank heavily, loved war and weapons, and he hated chapel services. A number of months ago, I ran into this fellow, and after we talked for a while. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, Chuck, the only thing I still miss is that, is that old fellowship I used to have with all the guys down at the local tavern. I remember how we used to sit around and laugh, drink a pitcher of beer and tell stories and let our hair down. And I can't, I can't find anything like that with Christians. I no longer have a place to admit my faults and talk about my battles where somebody won't preach at me and frown and quote a Bible verse. Swindle writes, it wasn't a month later that in my reading I came across this profound paragraph. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. Oh, it's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but, but it is permissive, it's accepting, it's an inclusive fellowship. It's unshockable. It's democratic. You could tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put it into the human heart, the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a, a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, this writer wrote, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come and, and they can say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches so oftentimes miss it. And Swindle goes on and says, Now before you take up arms to shoot some wag that would compare your church to the corner bar, stop and ask yourself some tough questions. Like, I had to do, he wrote. Make a list of some of the possible embarrassing situations people may not know how to handle. Like, a woman who discovers that her husband is a practicing homosexual. Where in the church can she find help and where she's secure with her secret? Or your mate talks about separation and divorce. To whom do you tell that? Your daughter's pregnant and she's run away for the third time and she's no longer listening to you. Who do you tell that to? You lost your job. And you lost it because it was your fault. You blew it, so there's shame mixed with unemployment. Now who are you going to tell that to? Financially, you were unwise, and now you're in deep trouble. Or a man's wife is an alcoholic, or, or something as horrible as getting back 
the biopsy from the surgeon and it reveals cancer and the prognosis isn't good. Or you had an emotional breakdown. To whom do you tell it? And then Swindle concludes, we're the only outfit I know that seems to shoot its own wounded. We can become the most severe, condemning, judgmental, guilt-given people on the face of the planet Earth. And we claim it's in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the while, we don't even know we're doing it. That's the pathetic part of it all. Lessons from a tavern. It was Jesus who told us that I want to give you a new commandment, that you love one another just like I have loved you. So love one another, and you prove to be my disciples. One thing that unhypocritical love is not, it's not going after our own wounded. Now, we have been in this section of Romans chapter 12 for a few weeks, and it'll be a couple more weeks, it looks like. And uh, we have been unpacking that concept from chapter 12, verse 9, let your love be without hypocrisy. And then there's that list of little phrases that describe it. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer, and as we saw last week, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Well, this morning, I want to continue uh, along those verses. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own estimation. Um, now, we kind of have come full circle. If we go back to verse 3, Paul wrote, Through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to have sound judgment. Uh, don't be haughty. There's a humility. And he ends this kind of major section with verse 16 with the same concept. Now, verse 14, I'm going to actually, uh, I want to develop that more later. Uh, so I'm going to skip verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Uh, bless and don't curse. And I want to go to verse 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is another characteristic of what unhypocritical love looks like. It's that love emotes. Uh, there's a there's, there's a visceral response to other people. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Um, not oftentimes easy to do. It's not easy to do sometimes because, um, well, our sin, our flesh kind of get, get in the way. You see someone getting the accolades, uh, people rejoicing with somebody, and maybe you thought you should have been there or you know something about them and the last thing people need to do is cater to that person. And so you kind of maybe deep down inside the flesh rears up and says, you know, there's nothing to rejoice about over that person. Or weeping with those who weep, um, we can bypass them and just ignore people who are struggling with something. 
Granted, it's a difficult verse, especially that last part, weep with those who weep. I mean, it's, it is easier to rejoice with those who rejoice. I mean, who doesn't like a party, right? A wedding celebration, this is the month, it seems like uh, June, that there's a lot of weddings. Uh, a graduation, these students, uh, I tell you, I'm sure the parents are rejoicing until they get the college bill, but then they go back to weeping. Um, birth of a child, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can rejoice over with people. It's the weeping with those who weep that often stumble us. It stumbles us because we are inclined not to, not to wade into those types of uh, painful waters with people. So we would just kind of bypass it, put our head down and keep walking down the hallway and avoid any conversation. Or, on the other hand, we go fully engaged and we try to fix it. We say too much. Notice that Paul doesn't say in that verse, give advice to those who weep. Paul doesn't say, remind those who mourn that there is resurrection hope and they need to keep their eyes on Jesus. Paul doesn't say here, explain to those who mourn that, that God always has a, has a good reason for what he does, that all things work together for good. Um, you know, chin up, cheer up, God's doing something. He doesn't say, fix those who mourn. He says, weep with those who weep. A few years ago, a man uh, locally here who was part of a local ministry in town came and spoke to our pastoral staff and about that ministry, but um, he had recently lost his wife to cancer, and he, uh, before he kind of started talking about the ministry and, and kind of informing the pastoral staff about that ministry, he he was talking about just the struggles right now that he was going through. And he said, you know, the funny thing about, about Christians, he said, I, in his own church, people were coming up and, and trying to encourage him. They meant well, but they would say some of the most ridiculous things, telling him that, don't worry, you're, you're going to see your wife again one day. And then he shocked us by saying, but I can't hug that when I come home at night. Um, I shudder to think sometimes the things I have said. Well, at least they're not suffering anymore. Um, God needed them in heaven. Um, amazing what comes out of people's mouths well-meaning. Proverbs 25, 20 says, like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Like someone who takes off a garment on a cold day, vinegar on soda is someone who sings songs to a troubled heart. Oh, aren't you glad they know Jesus? <laughs> One commentator wrote, when we mourn with others, we share the burden of their sorrows. Nothing has changed. Nothing's been fixed. 
Nothing's been solved except this. They are no longer alone in their mourning, and that changes everything. In all these examples of uh, characteristics of unhypocritical love, of course, the greatest example is Jesus himself. And just for a moment, if you go back to John chapter 11, uh, just want to look at a passage here. It's a familiar passage. It's Jesus, when he came to the home of Mary and Martha, after hearing word that their brother Lazarus had died. And in verse 30, John chapter 11, verse 30, it says, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the news, verse 31, uh, or then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb and weep there. Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. He said in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come and see, Lord. And then verse 35 if you grew up in Sunday school, you knew this would be the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Um, I don't want to overly analyze this, but there are two different words that are used here for the weeping. What Mary in the crowd was doing was a word, um, a, a Greek word that kind of describes more of the wailing, more of the, the almost uncontrollable sobbing. The word that is used to describe Jesus weeping is a different word, and it has to do more with the, with the, with the, the shedding of tears, the visible tears. There might not have been um, the sobbing, the uncontrollable shaking but it says in verse 36 that when the Jews saw that, they said, see how they loved him. As Jesus stands at the tomb of his dear friend, with Mary, Martha, the friends weeping, wailing, and they look at Jesus and there they are, the tears streaming down his cheeks. My, how he loved him. Jesus wept. Stories told of a little neighbor boy with a big heart who had gone over to his neighbor's home, an elderly man who had recently lost his wife, who was sitting in his chair uh, quietly weeping to himself, and the little boy simply crawled up in his lap and sat there. And when he got home, the mom asked, so what did you do at George's house? Oh, nothing, he said. I just crawled up in his lap and helped him, helped him cry. Weep with those who weep. It's not easy to do. Someone once wrote, you may forget with whom you laughed, but you will never forget with whom you wept. Joe Bailey and his wife Mary Lou had seven children. They lost three of them. 
tragically to either disease or one, a, a tragic accident. Joel wrote a book entitled The Last Thing We Talk About. And it's about these experiences. He wrote this. One of the experiences on the death of a son. I was sitting torn by grief and someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave, and he talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except that I wished he'd go away, and he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more listened when I said something, answered briefly, and prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You, you know you've done things right when those who are in agony hate to see you go. Now, now Paul is just taking one little phrase Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And he's, he's simply saying that when the love of God, the true, genuine, the real deal, the unhypocritical love with nothing in it for me is, is flowing through us, um, that, that's all we have to do. You just weep with those who weep. It's unhypocritical because, you see, there's no hidden agenda. When we try to say something and maybe try to fix the situation, uh, um, it's an uncomfortable moment. Well, it's uncomfortable for whom? For you. And so it's, it, <laughs> it's a kind of love, but it's tainted with a bit of self-centeredness. I'm uncomfortable in this situation. This kind of makes me nervous, and so I've got I've to say something. I've got to, you know, convey something. True, unhypocritical love isn't looking out for the uncomfortableness of me. It's looking out for what's best for you. Just rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Second phrase, though, there in verse 16 of the, the kind of unhypocritical love that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is that there's a love that unifies. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Love unifies. Now, I want to take you to another kind of companion passage, I guess, uh, to look at, it's over in Philippians chapter 2. So just flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Paul worded it a little differently in this letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. I'll just start with verse 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, 
but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and explains that attitude of Christ who emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a bond slave, dying on the cross for our sins. Now Paul is saying here, what, what would complete my joy? What would give me the fullest happiness? He says it is if you have the same mind as Christ, if you, if you exude the same love as Christ, if you're harmonious together in common purpose and spirit. The NIV says being one in spirit and purpose. Now, please understand, I don't think Paul is saying here that we have to all agree and dot our I's exactly the same and cross our T's exactly the same. There's great diversity within the body of Christ. There was even in Paul's time. Paul's not saying we have to all agree in all the different details of life. Um, we don't have to all agree on how to educate our children. <laughs> we don't have to all agree on how we, um, um, what kind of worship music we like. <laughs> we don't have to all agree on uh, many, many different things. I've said here often here at Fellowship Bible Church, even among the pastoral staff, we don't all agree on issues of uh, some of the things that the Bible says. I mean, we pretty much do, but we don't all agree exactly. A lot of different opinions on things. We don't all agree maybe on how Christians should be engaged in politics or how we should respond to this whole COVID thing. There's, there's multiple different perspectives out there in life. Paul is not calling for the erasing of everyone's own individuality and thinking on things, but what this passage is calling for is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be of the same mind with the same purpose and goal in mind. Now, what is that? What is Paul calling us to? What is the thing that we are to be all unified on so that we can present to the world a, a loving body of believers that is rallying around one common goal? Well, if we back up to verse... Um, in chapter 1, um, <clears throat> Paul says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Earlier he said in the beginning of chapter 1, in verse 4, he says, I'm always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus. And he says, um, I want you to know that, verse 13, that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without, without fear. So the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus was being proclaimed. And that was encouraging to Paul. Verse 15 says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some are doing it also from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. 
Now look at what Paul says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? What was the bottom line for the Apostle Paul? That Christ is proclaimed. He applauds them in his prayers. He said, even in my imprisonment, Christ is, the gospel is being proclaimed. Praise God. And even if some are doing that out of the wrong motives, well, you know, get over it. <laughs> um, it not, it's not bothering me um, as long as Christ is being proclaimed. For I know, he said in verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 20 and 21, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, that, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Bottom line for Paul is, that Christ is glorified, that Christ is proclaimed, that, that Christ is lifted up. That was the ultimate bottom line. That was the unifying thing. Um, <clears throat> he says in verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. The unifying factor is that we have good news to proclaim to this world. God so loved the world, he sent his son, and Jesus came and he died, and he paid the penalty for our sin. And he rose again, he lives, and he offers us a free gift of eternal life. There is good news to share with the world, and it has to do with Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to have differences of opinion on how to handle COVID and how to deal with political issues and how to homeschool or public school our children. We're going to, oh, I like these old hymns or I like that new worship song or whatever. There's going to be differences of opinion. That's fine. But the Apostle Paul is saying, don't you dare, don't you dare let those things separate you as a body of believers. How dare you do that? Because there's something far more glorious than how you think about this issue or that issue. It's that there is a message of hope. Jesus has died for our sins. And there's a lost world out there, and they don't care one whit about your particular perspectives of certain issues. They need Jesus. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that needs to be the unifying factor in our life. That's what Paul is saying. Make my joy complete and be of the same mind, the same purpose. When believers in, in Jesus Christ begin to ha behave like Christ and begin to exhibit that true, genuine, real-deal love. We can have wonderfully invigorating, engaging conversations about all sorts of different issues that we may disagree with. But we never, ever, ever, ever dismiss 
the good news of Jesus in that process. Do I hear an amen from the body? All right, let's live it. This is so important that the Apostle Paul is saying, make my joy complete. Now, again, look at what he said in verse 3. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Next week, I want to unpack that even more from the book of James a little bit. That little phrase that we kind of pass by quickly in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, associate with the lowly. Do we have the same care for one another, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Selfish, empty conceit. It always leads or always comes from and leads to and reinforces a me focus. I want my opinion to be heard on this matter. I disagree with you on this issue, and there's something wrong with you if you don't agree with me. It's a me focus. I need to be validated if you, if you don't believe the same way I believe on, on this matter and this insignificant point and, and this. I, I need to be validated. And so I'll argue with you. I'll, I'll raise my hackles against you. It's a me focus. But he says, rather, regard others as more important than yourself. Don't only look out for your own interests, but the interests of others. That's a, that's a you focus. I want to hear your perspective on this. The me focus is, is the person who makes the declarative statements. You're an idiot if you hold that view. Why, this is what truth is. This is what really is happening. The you focus uses interrogative statements, questions. Tell me, tell me what you're saying. Help me understand your perspective. That's very interesting. How, how do you validate that? How, how did you come to that conclusion? I'm interested in you. I'm not interested in me conveying my perspective on things. We'll never love genuinely, we'll never love sincerely with a me focus. A.B. Bruce, in a classic work entitled The Training of the Twelve, made this little statement. He said, the whole aim of satanic policy is to get self-interest recognized as the chief end of man. The whole aim of satanic policy is to get self-interest recognized as the, the primary goal that I have in relating with you. We've often said here at Fellowship Bible Church, you know, you preach for 31 years at one church, you're bound to repeat yourself multiple times. But one of the things that we have said many times here at Fellowship Bible Church is that there's two kinds of Christians. Two kinds of Christians. There's the here I am Christian. Please validate me. Please believe the same way I believe because I need that for myself. Or there's the there you are, Christian. There you are. How's it going with you? Help me understand your perspective. Here I am, or there you are. 
We'll either have a preoccupation with ourselves and attempt to force others to focus on us, or we have a one-another focus which regards someone else as more important than myself. Be of the same mind. True, unhypocritical, genuine, the real deal works at that oneness of, of purpose. It's always reminding each other that we have a glorious message to share with a lost world. A Savior has come who died for the sins of this world, who rose again and, and offers a free gift of eternal life. And that coworker or that elderly uncle of yours or that neighborly, that that friend of yours who doesn't know Jesus is going to spend a Christless eternity in hell if they don't put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we've got that common bond, that common purpose. But if it's a me-focused perspective, if, if I'm a here-I-am Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to get lost in all the here I am stuff. Do my words, do my actions reveal I'm a here I am Christian or a there you are Christian? What have I done? What have I done this week? If I play back the tapes of this past week, what have I done to express that I'm a here I am believer rather than a, a there you are? Have I put myself first? How does my spouse view me? How do my kids, how does my roommate view me? How does my coworker view me? Now, if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself right now, <laughs> don't, please, Lord, don't put that on me right now. Please. Don't force me into a situation where I have to love at that level of fervency and devotion. I just, I don't have it in me right now. I'm hurting. I'm going through some tough things in life. I can't, I can't give that kind of unhypocritical love. Please, don't put that on me. I can't be that kind of person right now. Well, let me encourage you by saying that <laughs> there certainly are those times in our life where every last seemingly ounce of, of strength, of, of, of anything that we could give to someone else has just been drained away, just sapped from us. The last drop of life, of, of service, has been drained from our being. But let me encourage you, because it's precisely in those times, so precisely in those times, when you're crawled up in a fetal position and you just, you don't want to look at another person and you certainly don't want to encourage anybody else, you just can't love period, that if you could at least listen ever so slightly to the Lord, 
he would say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And if we would be open to it, we would find that our blessed Savior would crawl up with us into that same fetal position and wrap his arms of love around us. And somehow, in some way, he will say, it's okay. I got you covered. I love you. I love you. When the Apostle Paul began to believe that, really believe it, he said in 2 Corinthians 12, most gladly, therefore, will I boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For, for when I am weak, I'm strong. Paul would say earlier in chapter 1, that as we're comforted with the comfort of the Lord, someday we can extend that same comfort to someone else. I'm so glad to serve a God who crawls up into our, our bed of sorrow and he holds us and he says, I love you. And my power will be perfected in your weakness. And you know what, folks? Even in those times, whether you want to believe this or not, you are ministering to others. I don't know how it works, but even in your intense pain and loneliness and sorrow, even in those moments where we say, I, I have nothing to offer anyone right now, just opening up your heart to Jesus, somehow it ministers to others. And those burdens you are presently bearing that are making it impossible to serve and be engaged in someone else's life right now, God actually uses those to enable you to be more like him. He loves to put us in positions of great dependency upon him. And he'll get you through it. But if you're here this morning and you've actively been engaged in the service of other people, as so many of you at FBC are, you have your spiritual antenna up and, and you just are engaged in people's lives, you, you know how draining and how wearying it can become. And let me encourage you to say, you know, God is never going to put us in a situation that is going to dishonor him. He'll empower us. He'll strengthen us. He'll tell us when to back away. He'll tell us when to engage. The spiritual life is a life of keeping in step with the Spirit of God. 
And while you are serving and while you are loving with unhypocritical, genuine, real deal love, while you are obediently being prompted by the Spirit and you are obediently engaging others, taking that meal, making that phone call, writing that note, spending that time with somebody, whatever it might be, while you're engaging that, that sincere love, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, for the gospel of Christ to lift it up, be encouraged, unlike the local tavern where people are finding cheap imitations you are offering the real deal. And one day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. When I was hungry, you, you fed me. When I was alone, you, you came and met with me. When I was in sorrow, you comforted me. And he did it for the glory of the, the good news and the proclamation of my excellencies in the world. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would uh, stir within us not a, not a legalistic tendency to say, I must be more like that. Or I've got to go out and I've got I've to be a better Christian this week. I pray that you just stir within us the incredible love and grace that has been poured out into our lives because of you. And as we reflect upon your grace and mercy and your love, even almost unbeknownst to us, it, it starts flowing out from us and impacting others. And Father, when that happens, people they notice and, and ultimately the, you're glorified and the, the good news of what you've done for us is proclaimed and doors are opened that we can share the hope that is within us. So help us to keep a proper perspective of life even this week no matter what comes our way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.